Let us pray together. Father, we do ask now that you would impart your wisdom to us, the same wisdom through which you made the world in the beginning, the same wisdom that was revealed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom that is found in your word. Father, we ask that you would impart this wisdom to us, for we know we live in a world that hates your wisdom and therefore loves death. Father, we pray that you would give us this wisdom, that we might share this wisdom with the world around us. Father, we pray that you would do these things for us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Everybody wants to know what's wrong with our culture today. Everybody's got their take on it, their assessment, uh, what's gone wrong, what can be done about it, how do we explain what's happening around us, the trends and the changes Uh, that are happening, it seems, at such a fast pace. The bottom line is very, very simple. It's very simple, really. We, as a culture, as a nation, as a civilization, have rebelled against God. We have rejected our Creator, His righteousness, His wisdom, His love, and that's why things are the way they are. That's what's happening. That's really all there is to it. When humans turn to the worship of idols, they sacrifice their own humanity. The more humans worship idols, the less human they become. And that means we lose sight of what life is all about. It's not as though we can just change who we worship, turning away from the worship of God to worship something else, and then go on with business as usual. No, everything else starts to fall apart. Everything else begins to come unglued once we cease worshiping the triune God, the living God. If we go back to the creation account in Genesis 1, we find that God made man male and female. So we could be fruitful and multiply, so we could rule and subdue and have dominion over the earth. Multiplication and dominion, that's the human mission. That's what God put us here to do, to represent his rule in this dominion we have over the creation, to extend his rule through multiplication. So the whole earth would be filled with a mirror image of God's own rule over the cosmos. In Genesis 2, God makes the man and then gives him a job to do. He's to take dominion over the Garden of Eden. He's to cultivate and guard the garden. And he gets after it right away. But he quickly learns he's going to need a helper for the task. And there's not a suitable helper among the animal creation. Adam learns it's not good for the man to be alone. So God makes the woman to be his wife. And now we find together they will rule the earth as king and queen in wisdom. Together they will be fruitful and multiply. Now, of course, we know it doesn't doesn't last this way for very long. You turn the page and you're to Genesis 3, And they rebel against God. And so now we have to ask, what is the human mission? How does this play out in a fallen world? In a fallen world in which the sin of man has brought the curse upon both dominion and multiplication. If you look at the curses in Genesis chapter 3, that's where they fall. For the man, the curse especially lands in this realm of dominion. For the woman, the curse especially lands in the realm of multiplication. Now in this cursed, fallen world, what is to be done? Well, by God's grace, the mission continues. By God's grace, God's people can and will ultimately fulfill this mandate given to us in the beginning. 
But now we, 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 we do have to make some adjustments because of the fall and God's promise of redemption. The mandate now really belongs to Christ and the church. That is, the mandate really belongs to the new Adam and to his bride. And again, and again, in the scripture, we find God promising that Christ and his bride will fill and rule the earth. In fact, we have a beautiful picture of this in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is really a love story. It's really a courtship where you have this young man who is really the prince. He will become the king. And he pursues Lady Wisdom and ultimately makes her his wife. You find her described in Proverbs chapter 31. And so he is the king. He has made Lady Wisdom his queen. And they will rule together over the kingdom. And they will live together happily ever after. And that's the picture that Proverbs gives to us. And of course, we can say ultimately that's Christ in the church, but it means we have a part to play in this. In Christ, we can play our part in both dominion and multiplication. And we've got to remember that the dominion and multiplication are centered in the Garden of Eden. That is the sanctuary, the place of worship. When dominion and multiplication are centered in the sanctuary, when they flow out of worship, this is how we advance God's kingdom. And the book of Proverbs was given to us for just this reason. The book of Proverbs was written to train a man in wisdom for just this reason, that he might fulfill this mission. Proverbs deals primarily with two areas of the man's life, his work and his wife. Or in the language of Genesis 1, we could say dominion and multiplication. And so again, remember in Genesis chapter 2, God gives the man work and then he gives the man a wife. And so in the book of Proverbs, God gives the man wisdom for work and for wife, his wife. Now, what does this have to do with us? Well, I think it should be obvious. I think it should be very obvious how this applies to our current situation. When the world comes apart, when things start to fragment and come unglued, that, that really shows up in two areas in what you might call work life and family life, these areas of dominion and multiplication. This is where things fall into disarray. In the social and political and economic life, things begin to unravel. And then people also fail to form families, or if they do form families, they all too often break up. The male-female relationship is strained. So what does our world need right now? We need a recovery of this mission, dominion and multiplication, and the wisdom that goes with it that enables us to fulfill this mission. What does the world need right now? Well, we need a lot of things. But certainly we need wisdom. So let's talk about how the wisdom found in God's word can help us. We are in desperate need of wisdom so we can get the dominion and multiplication program back on track. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? The first time we see this category of wisdom show up in scripture uh, is with the character Bezalel, who we read about in the book of Exodus. Bezalel is given a spirit of wisdom so he can fabricate furnishings for the tabernacle. 
so he can make the different pieces of furniture that will go in the tabernacle. He's going to work with cloth to make these garments. He's going to work with wood and stone and metals. And he will shape them as a craftsman into objects of glory and beauty for use in the place of worship. Note this, wisdom rules over and transforms the creation for the sake of worship. You cannot disconnect wisdom from worship. To live in wisdom means you do with your life what Bezalel did with metals, wood, and stone. It means you craft a life of glory and beauty, a life of worship, a life that is both useful and beautiful, a life that is both functional and glorious. Wisdom, you could say, is the art or skill of applying truth to your life. Wisdom is the art of living a well-crafted life. Just as Bezalel had to know and understand the properties of the woods, the metals, and the stones he would work with, so the wise man understands the nature and patterns of the world God made and governs. Wisdom means you recognize natures and patterns in the world that reflect God's design. Wisdom is about recognizing the natures and patterns of the things God has made, how these design, how these things are rooted in God's design. You work with the different aspects of your life the way Bezalel worked with his materials. In other words, you could say this, wisdom perceives and faces the world as it really is. Wisdom is a reality check. Wisdom deals with the world as it is, not as we might like it to be. Think about Bezalel. He might wish that stone was a lot easier to work with. He might wish that you could carve the wood with a butter knife instead of something more substantial. But these things, they are what they are. Bezalel has to recognize that and work with them accordingly. He's got to recognize the natures and patterns that God has built into the world. That's what wisdom does. Foolishness. Proverbs, of course, is all about the contrast between the wise man and the fool. Foolishness, by contrast, is marked by living in a fantasy world, a world of one's own designs. Foolishness is preferring one's ideology to the way things actually are. You could say virtual reality uh, tempts us to all be fools, to, to think we can remake the world, redesign the world, however we want it to be. God made the world a certain way. He governs the world a certain way. And wisdom recognizes that. It recognizes the natures and patterns God has built into his cosmos. Much of the book of Proverbs, you you know this, you're familiar with the book of Proverbs enough to know this. Much of the book of Proverbs describes regularities in God's world. That's really what a proverb is by definition. A proverb is a little saying that captures a pattern or a regularity in God's world. And usually in the book of Proverbs, what is being captured, the kind of regularity that's being captured is what we could call moral cause and effect. And so Proverbs again and again describes the moral order God has built into the cosmos so we can recognize the nature of things. The the, the patterns that God has built into his world. Proverbs gives us these kind of patterns again and again. So you'll have Proverbs that go basically in this kind of form. Obedient action A leads to prosperous result B. Sinful action Y leads to calamitous result Z. The hardworking man will prosper in what he does. The lazy man will be overtaken by poverty. 
That's the way Proverbs work. That, that's how the book of Proverbs work. And that's why wisdom is so valuable. Wisdom, in a way, unlocks these regular patterns uh, that we find in the world around us. It unlocks the moral order God has built into the universe. It perceives how God's world works. It recognizes how God orchestrates events. Again, the patterns and regularities that are rooted in God's creational design and his providential governance of the world. And so when we have this kind of wisdom, wisdom can guide our lives. Wisdom can help us interpret the world around us. We can see what's happening. Now, with that understanding of wisdom, we can start to see what's wrong with the world today. Why is our culture so full of chaos and confusion? Well, simple, really. We live in a culture of fools. We live in a culture of fools, people who have rejected God and rejected God's design. We have chosen folly over wisdom. Our culture is living in a state of denial. We're in denial about the way God made his world and the way God runs his world. We're in denial about that moral order, the regularities and patterns God has built into his world. And Proverbs recognizes there will be people like this. I already mentioned the fool, but there are other categories of people in the book of Proverbs. You've got the simple uh, man in the book of Proverbs, the simpleton. And he's naive about the way God has made the world. He's naive about the way God structures and orders and orchestrates events in the world, but he can still learn. But then you've got the scoffer. The scoffer is someone who rejects and mocks the truth, who will not receive correction. He is wise in his own eyes. He thinks he has the world figured out, even though he has rejected God. And he mocks the ways of God. He mocks the truth of God. Our culture is full of scoffers. Our culture is full of people who mock the truth of God. Our culture is full of people who have substituted their foolish ideologies for God's revealed wisdom. Think about this. What has shaped the way modern people look at the world? It's not God's word anymore, so what is it? Well, our culture, especially beginning in the 1960s, though you could certainly trace it back uh, far further than that, uh, but our culture began to make what has been called the therapeutic term. The therapeutic term. This has been called the triumph of the therapeutic. And this has radically changed the way we see ourselves. This therapeutic term that has taken place. Prior to this shift to the therapeutic, most people recognized that there is an objective moral order. That just as there are physical facts, there are moral facts. Just as there are physical laws, there are moral laws. And most people had a basic understanding of this. And they realized that facts don't care about your feelings. The world is what it is no matter how you feel about it. And this is true morally as well. Moral facts don't care about your feelings. There's right and there's wrong and that's it. Deal with it. That's the older way of looking at things. With the triumph of the therapeutic, that has changed. With this therapeutic turn. The therapeutic turn took us from the goal of being good to the goal of feeling good. People no longer strive to be good. They now strive to feel good. Let me just give you one example of this, a real simple example. Think about work. 
Uh, if any of us could go back and uh, ask our grandfathers or perhaps great-grandfathers, what is the purpose of your work? Why do you get out of bed every morning and go into the factory uh, or, or the office? What is the purpose of your work? He would have most likely said, the purpose of my work is to provide for my family. My work is how I provide for others because that's what a good man does. And I want to be a good man, so I'm going to work hard to provide. That's why I work. That's the purpose of my work. But if you were to ask uh, people today the purpose of their work, what do they say more often than not? They'll say, well, I work in order to be fulfilled because it makes me feel good about myself. And that's not altogether wrong. I'm not saying everything about that is wrong. There are things about the work in itself that can be satisfying or fulfilling. But when that becomes the goal, we can see how there's been a real shift. Now it's about feeling good, feeling good about the work, the work bringing me satisfaction and fulfillment. See, what's happened with this therapeutic turn, the triumph of the therapeutic, people have increasingly denied that there is an objective moral order. We have subjectivized right and wrong. So now what feels good is right. What feels bad is wrong. And in fact, it's not just that people are denying an objective moral order. Today we're starting to see people follow through on this and deny an objective physical order as well. So that even things like biology can be completely disregarded. And so now today you might say, in light of the therapeutic turn, you might say the slogan that defines us is this, feelings don't care about facts. Or even feelings determine the facts. Feelings create the facts. People in general in our culture today think that feelings determine right and wrong. Feelings even determine our identity. I feel, therefore I am. And how I feel, that determines who I am. Increasingly, people now think their subjective feelings override any objective reality. And as a result, our culture is waging an all-out war on reality. What is this? It is nothing less than an assault on reality. People today believe morals and everything else is socially constructed. Everything is a matter of, uh, of social construction. Now, G.K. Chesterton uh, diagnosed this long before we actually arrived at this point. G.K. Chesterton, about 100 years ago, said this. The first effect of not believing in God is that you lose your common sense. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing. It's just what Scripture tells us to expect. Think about how Scripture describes the thinking of those who reject God. Romans 1 says unbelievers have debased minds, and that's why they approve of what ought not to be done, because their minds are debased. Ephesians 4 gives a comprehensive description. It says of, of the unbelievers, they walk in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Ephesians 4 is basically saying the reason people have an intellectual problem with God or with the way God made the world, the reason they have an intellectual problem is because they have a heart problem. It's because they're in rebellion against God. Colossians 1 and 2 say that the minds of unbelievers are hostile and sensuous. Now, let me give you an example of, of this, an example to spell out how this works, a test case 
Uh, but it's not just any test case. I think it's really the ultimate test case. Uh, in a recent book, uh, the, the Christian scholar Carl Truman asked the question, how did we get to the point where the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, came to make sense? How did we get to the point where that kind of statement makes sense? You know, people used to think that kind of claim was delusional nonsense. And they would have said, you are what you are. You are what your body says you are. Your biology reveals who you are, not your feelings. And, and, and if anything, then you need to get your feelings in line with your biology because that, your, your body, that's an objective fact about you. Your sex is an objective fact about who you are. Get your feelings in line with that. But now, the President of the United States says that transgenderism is the great civil rights issue of our age. Why is that? Why is this the most important issue in our culture to progressives? Statistically speaking, there are very few people who actually experience gender dysphoria, as it's called. And I would say, when somebody does experience gender dysphoria, we ought to shower them with all kinds of compassion and love, but we must also deal with them truthfully. And that's the one thing our culture doesn't want to do. Why is this culture so obsessed with this issue of transgenderism? This is the issue that is sucking up all the oxygen in the room. It just dominates everything. We've had executive orders on it. There's pending legislation on it. It's constantly at the center of social media. Some companies and corporations are now requiring employees to state their pronouns, to show solidarity with the transgender cause. There are TV specials on transgender kids that, that follow them around, kind of reality TV for transgender kids. Why is this issue so, so, so central? Why has it become so important? Well, here's why. It affects very few, but it symbolizes so much. Because, see, this issue of transgenderism, it really crystallizes the modern therapeutic view of the self and sexuality. The transgender issue has symbolic value. It represents the modern view of identity in its purest form. Transgenderism is the ultimate laboratory in which we can run our experiments in personal and sexual autonomy. Because think about it, if, if you can choose your gender, then obviously you can choose everything else about who you are, everything else about your sexuality and yourself. It is the purest form of autonomy. Now this is a real contrast to the biblical view. In the biblical view, identity is given to us. Uh, in the biblical view, identity is an aspect of God's creation and providence. Think about Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God made them male and female, and that settles it. You can't unmake yourself and then remake yourself a different way, no matter what kind of drugs you're given or what kind of technology or surgeries are used. You simply can't. You are who God made you to be. God assigns you an identity. He made you male or female, and that is fixed. In the biblical view, God gives us an identity by situating us in a web of relationships, starting with our families. And he gives us a, a calling that, that, that further gives us our identity. And he gives us a law that reveals his design for our lives. 
And then we could add to that. We could say God imposes a new identity on us in baptism. When he brings us into his church family, he gives us a new name, a, a, a new identity. And he makes us his children. See, in this Christian view, this biblical view, identity comes from the outside in. It comes from God. It's granted to us. It's bestowed upon us. We are who God makes us to be. We are who God calls us to be. We are what God says we are. He determines our identity and our obligations. And we are called to live under his law as his creatures. But in the modern view, in today's view, identity is not God-given, it's self-created. Identity is not bestowed upon you, it's chosen. You choose your own identity, just like you choose your own values. You construct an identity for yourself, and you are not even constrained by your own biology. You can't even choose your own gender. It is pure sexual autonomy. It's this view that our sexuality is totally fluid. We can create and design our own sexuality. Our identity is completely under our own control. And so really, why is transgenderism so important? Well, you could say this is really the ultimate act of defiance. It is the ultimate form of autonomy. The liberal Episcopal Bishop, Gene Robinson, uh, put it this way. He said, there are as many sexualities as there are human beings. Everyone gets to have their own unique sexuality, their own unique gender. Uh, one advocate of transgenderism has said that parents cannot know if the child that they have given birth to is a boy or a girl. They can't know if they have a son or a daughter at birth because each person has to decide what to be. And this author says, only you can decide who you are, not your father, nor your mother, nor even your own body can give you any help in deciding. Nothing is given. All is created by the self. We are blank slates. There is no design to fulfill, no human nature to live out. We get to author our own stories. We get to fashion our own identity. Reality is what I say it is. There are no objective truths. The only truth is what I declare for myself. There is no givenness. There is only what I decide to be for myself. There is no male or female nature given to you at conception that determines the trajectory of your life. The body has no meaning except what I choose to give to it. That's the modern therapeutic view. And so in this modern therapeutic view, of course, the traditional family is regarded as oppressive. Why progressives are so intent on breaking up the family because the traditional family with its order and its structure, its inherent architecture puts expectations and obligations on people, on its members that were not chosen or created by the self for the self. Marriage, of course, is seen as oppressive for the same reasons. This is why, again, our culture has worked so hard to undermine and redefine marriage to do away with any object of meaning or structure in marriage. Marriage has got to be just as fluid as our sexuality. See, really, our culture's done to marriage the same thing it's done to gender. We have decided we can reject God's creative work and instead define these things however we want to. In fact, this is how far it goes. Transgender ideology is so powerful, it even allows us to rewrite the past. 
Ask Google who won the gold medal in the decathlon in the Olympics in Montreal in 1976. Ask that question and the answer you'll get back is Caitlyn Jenner. Okay. That is a lie. But transgenderism is so powerful it can not only change your sex, your gender, it can even rewrite the past. Not even history is safe. Even the past can be rewritten. And if you disagree with that, if you do think that's a lie, if you don't think Caitlyn Jenner actually won the 1976 Decathlon Olympic gold medal, then you are a bigot because you are transphobic. This is straight out of Orwell. It's funny how much uh, life is now imitating fiction. In Orwell's 1984, the party defines reality, of course, but the party even has the power to rewrite the past. Even history is malleable in the shape of the party to make the past whatever it wants. You know, people have joked that 1984 uh, is supposed to be fiction, not a script to be followed. But this is kind of where we are. I've, I've seen t-shirts that say, make 1984 fiction again, because that's pretty much where we are. Let me give you a few other examples of this. Progressive Camille Poglia describes it this way. She actually admits there is a givenness to, to nature, but then listen to what she says about it. She admits there's a givenness to nature, but listen to what she says. She says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. My body, my choice. My body, my choice of gender. My body, my choice of sexuality. George Katev, who is a uh, professor at Princeton, uh, he says, since nature has no telos, no purpose, no built-in design or meaning, since nature has no telos, the human species is at its greatest when it breaks out of nature. You have a moral obligation, he's saying, not to live in accord with your natural design. You've got a moral obligation to break free from that to violate nature, to defy nature. Because there is no divine creational design to submit to, again, you design your own identity. Nature is completely malleable. We are the potters of our own clay. We fashion ourselves however we wish. Or perhaps the best summary of this comes from the 1992 Supreme Court case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Uh, the reasoning in this particular case, uh, the majority opinion has proven to be hugely important in subsequent cases. Uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the court's majority opinion, and this is how he described what it means to be human. This is how he described human liberty. He says, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Now, that's a bunch of mystical nonsense, really, is what it is. Okay? But this is what is driving progressivism today. This version of liberty, a version of liberty that is really slavery. Because here, freedom is defined as freedom from God, freedom from all reality. That's not real freedom. But that's how we now define freedom in America. You are free to fashion your own meaning, your own concept of existence. In other words, what Kennedy is really saying is you get to be your own God. That's what it means to be free. You shall be as gods. 
And so Kennedy is not an atheist, far from it. He is a polytheist. And according to his majority opinion in that Supreme Court case, America is not one nation under God, but one nation of 330 million gods. We are all our own gods. That's the lie of progressivism. See, if you reject the law of God, you reject the laws of reality. If you reject the wisdom of God, you reject your own nature, your own design. If you reject the creator, you lose touch with the creation. And so I'll put it this way. We Christians cling to God not only for salvation, but for sanity. We don't only look to God for the forgiveness of our sins. We don't only look to God for salvation. We trust in God to keep us sane as well because it's the only way. Again, G.K. Chesterton, he's he's so prophetic. He saw so much of this coming. About 100 years ago, it's actually astounding now when you think about what's happening in 2021. It's actually astounding he said this. But G.K. Chesterton, about 100 years ago, wrote this. We shall soon be in a world in which a man may be howled down for saying that two and two make four in which people will persecute the heresy of calling a triangle a three-sided figure and hang a man for maddening a mob with the news that grass is green. Okay, Chesterton said 100 years ago, the day is coming when a man is going to be attacked for saying two plus two equals four. Okay, well, you know what we've seen happen in the last year? A whole spate of articles have come out attacking the idea that two plus two equals four claiming that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is the product of, get this, the white supremacist patriarchy. Of course. Because apparently those are the guys who came up with math, who invented 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay, I'm, I'm serious, you can look this up. These are, they're, they're, these are headlines, there are articles about this. And again, it's straight out of, out of Orwell. In 1984, the citizens are forced to affirm 2 plus 2 equals 5 because of government propaganda. But now we've got college professors on American campuses who are saying two plus two equals four is unjust. That's grounded in discrimination. You've even got a Harvard professor who's making that claim. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us. (laughs) But even if it doesn't surprise us, it should scare us. Because remember what Voltaire said. Those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. And it does make you wonder what's coming next. Our culture is imploding. Uh, Our culture has brought all of this folly on itself. Our ideologies are the product of our idolatries. Our false ideologies have arisen because of our false gods. We have these ideologies because we are idolaters. All of this is happening because men have turned from God. Because people have forgotten God. And we have to see, too, that all of this is a judgment from God. In Romans chapter 1, unnatural sexuality, unnatural practices, sexual practices, uh, sexual insanity is not just a sin that brings judgment, but it is the judgment. This is what happens when God gives people over to their sin, to their rebellion, to their idolatry. This judgment brings with it a kind of blindness. And it's just the kind of blindness we see in our culture. When we refuse God's light, all that is left is the darkness. 
When we refuse God's light, we are left only with darkness, and that means disaster awaits. A reality check is coming. What is reality? Reality is that thing you run into when your beliefs are false. Our culture's ideologies have written checks that are going to bounce. So what's going to happen when the balance comes due? In our culture, we have exchanged God's truth for our modern and postmodern lies. And so we're like a delusional person who thinks he can fly, who thinks he can defy the laws of gravity. There is no law of gravity. I don't believe in gravity. I will fashion a reality for myself. I will create myself. I identify as a flying being. And so our culture is like the man who jumps off a tall building. And for a few seconds, he thinks he's pulled it off. For a few seconds, he's hanging there in the air thinking he's done it. And that's right where our culture is right now. But we are about to smack into the ground. It's coming. A reality check is coming. We as Christians who know God's wisdom, who are familiar with God's ways, we must speak up. We have to be willing to face the painful realities. We have to face the truth and speak the truth. Our rebellion against nature and nature's God is going to bring us to ruin unless we repent. Wendell Berry put it this way, speaking of nature, and I don't know if he meant the same thing by nature I would or the same thing the Bible does, but he says, this applies, he says, whether we and our politicians know it or not, nature is party to all our deals and decisions, and she has more votes, a longer memory, and a sterner sense of justice than we do. When you rebel against the way God made the world, when you rebel against the order of creation, creation strikes back. Creation fights back because creation is always on God's side. But here's a problem. I want to say one more thing before I, get to, before I wrap this up. Here's a problem that our society faces, a dilemma we Christians are going to have to deal with. The culture has adopted ideologies that simply cannot work. They are foolish. They do not fit with how God made the world or how God designed humans to live. But as this failure becomes apparent, so as these progressive policies fail, what's going to happen? Progressives are not going to blame their ideologies for failing to conform to humanity. They're going to blame humanity for failing to conform to their ideology. And so rather than change their ideologies and say, well, those ideas didn't work, we need to try something else, they're going to try to change humanity. They're going to try to change the people who stand in the way, and that's where things get really messy. Because they're going to double down and triple down on using what? Technology and the power of the state and the power of major corporations to make their unnatural and idolatrous fantasies come true. And as Christians, we will find ourselves more and more convenient scapegoats for the failure of these progressive policies. They're going to say, well, it's other people, it's especially those Christians 
who are oppressing us and standing in the way of progress because we disagree with them, that will make them feel guilty. And aha, that is really the problem. You Christians are still making us feel guilty. And that's why these policies are not working. Now, the reality is we're not uh, oppressing them at all. Uh, They're, in fact, not really even being oppressed. It's just they're reaping what they've sown. Reality feels oppressive to those who reject God's ways. Nature feels oppressive to those who live in unnatural ways. Because our therapeutic age has made feelings central, the ultimate sin, the unforgivable sin, is harm. It's causing harm. And harm is now defined as hurting someone's feelings. And it hurts people's feelings to disagree with them. And that's why our nation is on the verge of outlawing truth-telling. Because the truth sometimes stings. Telling the truth is being rapidly reclassified as hate speech. Now understand, there's only one answer to this mess, and I gave it to you at the beginning, but I'll give it to you here again. There's only one answer to this mess, and that is returning to the triune and living God. The God of creation, the God of the Bible, the God of all wisdom. And we see this wisdom, this wisdom of God, described in Proverbs chapter 8. And I I actually believe that this passage is best understood as referring to the Son of God who embodies the wisdom of His Father. The Son of God through whom the Father created. Proverbs 8 shows us that. And so Proverbs 8 shows us Christ is the foundation of all logic, reason, truth, and morality. He is the source of all meaning and beauty. God and God alone is the fountain of all wisdom. And so rejecting Him is pure folly. God is the foundation of common sense and law. And so without Him, what do you get? Lawlessness and nonsense. Again, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton said the Christian faith is at one with common sense. The Christian faith is at one with common sense. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he certainly didn't mean everything that passes for common sense really is sensible. Now, actually, common sense is very uncommon in all kinds of ways. And he certainly didn't mean people can figure out the Christian message, the gospel, just using their reason. No, not that at all. But what he meant is this. Christians are the great champions of reality. Christians are the great defenders of facts and truth. We seek to understand the world the way it really is, not as we might like it to be. We know that life can be both harsh and beautiful, both painful and joyful at the same time. And because Christians are the great defenders of reality, we know those who reject God end up rejecting reality as well. No trinity, no truth. It is Christ or chaos. Those are the only alternatives before us. The only way back is through Christ Jesus. The only way back is is through Christ Jesus as he reconnects us to the Father. And note the problem isn't just progressivism. A Christless conservatism is really no better and cannot save us either. So what is our calling in the midst of this cultural mess? It's to live lives of glory and beauty and usefulness. It's to live lives of wisdom. 
It's to walk in the light even when so many around us love the darkness. Our calling is to make sure that our own lives and our own families are in good order. That we are pursuing holiness as God defines it in every way, in every realm of life. Our calling is to make sure we live in liberty, the true liberty brought by the gospel. Not liberty as autonomy, but the ordered liberty of living according to God's law because we were made to live according to God's law the same way fish were made to swim in water and and the same way birds were made to soar in the air. It's the law of God that shows us the way of liberty. It means we're to live by true wisdom, the eternal wisdom of God as it's made concrete and specific for us in various places in Scripture, especially in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs gives us God's wisdom, unlocking for us the way God's world works. It is God's eternal wisdom made specific and concrete. And it means we have to proclaim God's whole counsel. And yes, that starts with the message of the gospel. The good news of Christ's death to forgive sinners their sins and his resurrection to bring us new life. But while the gospel is central, we must declare the whole counsel of God. And that means applying the word of God to every aspect of life. The whole Bible for the whole of life. The whole Bible for the whole of culture. The gospel means grace restores nature. The gospel means creation is being redeemed. And that means that practically every issue can become a gospel issue. Because the gospel promises the complete healing, renewal, restoration, and transformation of everything. All of creation and culture is to be renewed and redeemed in Christ Jesus. We must reject the sexual Gnosticism that separates identity from the body. We must proclaim the goodness of God's creation, including the body, the integrity of God's creation as he designed it. Creational realities like marriage and family and the goodness of work and free exchange in the marketplace, all of those things matter. We must practice love as defined by God's law. We must practice mercy and compassion according to God's word. We must become a people known for service and sacrifice. This is the way of wisdom. This is the way of wisdom as it fuses together the patterns of creation with the patterns of redemption. That's what the Christian life is all about. This is the wisdom by which God created. This is the wisdom seen in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his cross. This is the wisdom God's spirit imparts to us. This is the wisdom we are called to embody. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.